It's another episode of Where You Are, Season 3. Well, hello, everyone, and it is Sunday, November the 28th, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. The guest that was originally scheduled to be on my podcast this week had to postpone for a later date, and I didn't have anyone else lined up. So I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about some things that are important, interesting, funny, whatever to me. This will not be an hour long, I promise. And if you don't want to listen to just me, that's fine. Just tune me out. But I will say this before you go away, if you don't want to listen to me, I will be returning after this in January. I'm going to take December off from the podcast so that I can go through with my move and finish up the semester and the grading. And it's really harder to to get guests during December anyway. So I'll be back in January to finish out my season, which will last January through through the first part of May. So there'll be many more episodes to come. And let's get started. First of all, I've been reflecting a lot lately on my career as a teacher. You know, before I started teaching, I was in retail for roughly seven or eight years. And I did that for a while. I worked at Bath and Body Works. I worked at Hat Shack, which was the most miserable nine months of my existence. And I also worked for a great bookstore called Borders Books and Music. I lived up in Connecticut and I worked there for a few years I moved to Athens and I moved back to Alabama. So I started teaching after I decided I wanted to go to grad school. I'd been in retail for a long time and I didn't feel fulfilled. I didn't feel like I was doing anything that mattered or that was important. So I went to grad school and started teaching in in 2009. So I've now been teaching, I guess, for 12 years almost. And I started at Marion Military Institute. And I wasn't sure that I would survive (laughs) that job. Uh, When I first started, I thought, well, this is going to be really strange. I mean, me, if anyone who knows me, it seems a little weird that I'd be working at a military school, but I'll have to tell you that that was, I worked there six years and I made such great friends like Buffy and Kelly and, and Jeffrey and all of these people and, and, and uh, Beatrice, people that I worked with who were just amazing people. There were people in the community who were so wonderful and I learned so much from working with those cadets. I learned how to stand up for what is right. When I was working there, there were some really big problems happening in terms of a staff person who was doing some inappropriate things with students. And 
those students came to me and to another teacher and that began a very lengthy process of trying to get some accountability for that staff person. So there, a lot of the time that I was there, it was a very confrontational and stressful situation to be in, but it also is a situation where I learned that I could stand up to people and even risk my own job for the right thing. So I felt that I learned a lot about myself and, and, and about what, what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of, but I also learned how to be a really good teacher and how to connect with students who at first were very intimidating to me because you walk in and it's just all of these, I don't know, for lack of, this is like probably pop psychology, but all these alpha males and alpha females and alpha people, right? Just these very gung-ho, whether it was the ones going into the military or the ones that were athletes or it was just a very different personality than I thought I was used to. And I thought that I, I might be eaten alive. But the truth was that I think because I was uh, vulnerable enough to be honest and real and also because I was qualified to be doing what I was doing because I knew what I was doing, I think that somehow I was able to connect with students and um, I learned how to become how to how to engage with people that I at least perceived as being so fundamentally different than me. And so that I learned a lot. I also learned a lot about teaching writing. I teach English 101. I teach literature. I teach freshman composition. And I learned and how to do that. I honed my skills over those six years that I was at MMI. I remember one of the things that stands out to me, talking about interacting with folks that I thought were very different from me. Students often tell me I look like Robin Williams and a student, we were in a computer lab and one of my students said to me, he said, Hey, Mr. Ellenberg, you know who you look like? And I was like, okay, it's either going to be Kevin Spacey or it's going to be, you know, uh, Michael Stipes or it's going to be, and it was, it was, um, y'all I'm getting old. Who did I just say? Um, Robin Williams. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, everybody tells me I look like Rob here. I hear that a lot. You know, that's, that's cool. And so when they left the computer lab, I decided, you know, teachers always go around and make sure that everybody turned off their monitors and turned off the computer. And of course, on this young person's uh, screen was a picture of Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire. So I think that kind of <laughs> sums up this sort of uh, relationship I had with my students who liked to kid around with me, but who also respected me. So I, I worked there for a, for six years, like I said, and then I decided to to get a new job. And I luckily got hired at the current college where I work. And I think I've learned a lot of different things there because, you know, at MMI, it was, that was like a boarding school, basically. All the cadets lived there. There were a lot of athletics. There were there were all kinds of things. And the students, it was there was a different kind of atmosphere on campus because the students lived there. And also it was in the middle of nowhere. And uh, now I, where I teach now is more like a regular, normal community college with students ranging from, you know, dual enrollment at 16 or 17 to, uh, you know, 70 years old. So there's a wider age range of students. So I've learned to deal with having that kind of diversity in my the sort of age diversity in the classroom. And 
I've also created newer assignments over time. I think I've, I've refined my syllabus. I've refined the way that I teach writing. And I think I've learned a lot and I still enjoy teaching and have a passion for it. So since COVID though, the, and by the way, let me back up. I have been teaching online for years, just as long as I've been teaching face-to-face -face classes. Well, one year less. And I have used Canvas. I have used Blackboard. I haven't used Moodle. Um, I've, but I, I've used various different learning management systems. I've had various, I've taught various courses, literature, English, whatever. So now as we move since COVID, move more and more into online classes, as our face-to-face -face classes seem to be shrinking now, and more and more students are moving online, it really does make me wonder if this is still where I need to be and what I want to be doing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not planning on quitting or anything like that. It's just, even though I feel that I rise to the challenge of teaching online, it's a completely different beast than teaching face-to-face. -face, but even though I feel that I can rise to that challenge and do and have, and of course I make mistakes and learn from them, but the, the, the energy and the joy of the classroom experience is just, in my estimation, impossible to recreate online. The, the only models I think that we have as teachers that we can look at where we're, you know, we, I've been talking a lot and thinking a lot lately about trying to create a better sense of community in an online class to get more engagement, to, to, to get rid of the sense of, I think, isolation that many students feel. And frankly, that I feel too. You know, I looked back recently to find some sample papers from some past classes. And this was only like in the spring, earlier in the spring of, of this year. So it was, you know, January, February, spring semester, January, February, March, somewhere in there of 2021. And I was, I found some good papers in an online course. And as I was scrolling through those names of those online students, I don't remember most of them because I never saw them. I never made connections with them. I, you know, even if, look, I do email my students. I have a list. And I, I, email, I make sure that I email students once a week, every week, if they're in an online class. But truthfully, I could send out and have sent out 30 emails and maybe get three responses. I've never gotten more than that. And I do that regularly. But my point is never meeting the people, never connecting with them, never seeing their facial expressions, never having a face-to-face -face conversation. It's hard to connect with them and to remember them in the future. And of course, I don't remember every student I've ever had. But it's harder to remember even the names, to even recognize the names of people that were in a class with me for three or four months, right? So the only model that I can think of to try to improve that or to, to look at that and examine it and tinker with is, is how we interact socially on social media outside of school, right? So we have Facebook and, and, and well, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and et cetera, et cetera, right? But I don't find a model there <laughs> that really works in an online class either. And I think one of the, you know, I, I've, I've found these questions, right? I, I was looking at these questions. I was looking at ways to create community in an online course. And I came across these questions 
they're not designed for that, but they're just, they're called the 36 questions for increasing closeness. And they were created by a psychologist, I think in the nineties and I'll, I'll, I'll find his name later. It's Alan something. And, you know, someone, I think in one of the boards I was reading or one of some, some website was talking about how you could use these questions in discussion boards instead of typical things like, Hey, why are you in school or whatever? So I have been looking at these questions that I'm going to come back to in, in a little while and, and, and read some of them to you that are supposed to increase closeness between people. And maybe, maybe we could do that in discussion boards and that would, that would somehow create more of a sense of community. But the, the problem I think with online learning is that a lot of people, believe it or not, no matter what age they are, need motivation to complete assignments, to really invest beyond completing assignments. They need motivation to invest in their own education and in, in a class, to invest in a class. You know, you can just show up and check a box and finish an assignment online. It's very easy, right? Like just a lot of students do that. They just click on the assignment and they don't really look at all the context around it and then they don't they don't really learn anything that way so my goal always is learning centered i always want students to learn and so engagement is a means to that end but 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 uh, it's not just a means to an end right so in the classroom face to face one of the ways that students are motivated is to find themselves in a positive enriching space and you can create that uh, through community in the classroom. And I think that feeds into, just in my experience, this is not scientific, but in my experience, that feeds into uh, helping people, students, want to do better in a class because it's a positive experience for them. And the online courses, there's just, in terms of motivating people by creating a positive space, I can't, I've, I've done things like create, uh, I'll, I'll put uh, gifts or gifs, whatever the heck in an announcement, you know, cute little things. I'll, I'll wish, you know, I'll make announcements two or three times a week and I'll say something funny or I'll leave them a song, a YouTube video. You know, I try to not make everything I share with them simply directions or, 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 you know, corrections or whatever. I do try to commit, create that sense of community because I want them to, to feel a it's a positive experience and I want them to invest in the learning in the course. Right. So it's hard to get people to want to really invest like that. It's hard enough in face-to-face -face classes. It's even harder in online courses. And I think that you can as a college or even as a, as a nation of educators, it's, there is, I think some friction between a general sense out there in the in the world that college is something that you need to get through to get the degree to get your job you know this sense of a utilitarian education is something i don't think it's going anywhere i don't think it's going away and i don't see anything wrong with getting qualifications to get a job of course that's a great thing it's a wonderful thing to have a career and a job and make money and be able to support yourself and all that but that is not the sole purpose of education. It just isn't. The sole purpose of education is not 
that everything that you learn in college or school has to be directly related to your career. That is impossible. Just think about it. That is impossible. I didn't even know what I wanted to be necessarily in high school other than an actor. Um, but I, and in college, I thought I wanted to be an actor changed my mind. Fifth, fifth year. It took me five years y'all. So I just don't know. Look, I think it's, I actually think it's, I think people would accuse me of being having some sort of utopian view of education. I actually think the utilitarian view of education is the utopian view. It is impossible to achieve because no one knows for sure. Everyone at least doesn't know for sure what they want to do, right? Every you could change careers. So then what do you, what do you do? Um, there are other things in your life besides your career. There are other things in your life besides your job. There are, Education is about the whole person, if you ask me. And I think the online uh, model of education, even people getting their, and don't yell at me, even people getting masters and PhDs and things online, it can set you up for that box checking mentality much easier than going face to face. So my passion is definitely being Oh, what's the right word? I want to say mitigated, but but it's being dampened a little bit by this online thing. It's one thing to teach online and teach face-to-face. -face. It's quite another when the majority of your classes become online and the face-to-face -face classes dwindle. So we'll see how that goes. But I want to return to these questions. So let me do that. So as I was saying, I was trying to find a way to create some sense of community in my online classes. And I came across something in some professional development where someone was recommending trying these 36 questions for increasing closeness. This was designed by a psychologist in the 90s who I think created it for people to fall in love, uh, that it would, but it also works to allegedly to help bring people closer, even if they already know each other, if they're already a couple, or even in situations like a classroom. So the guidelines are to, you know, identify someone that you'd like to be closer with, <clears throat> uh, find at least 45 minutes, and then this the questions are in sets of three. There's three sets of questions, and you're supposed to take 15 minutes for each set, taking turns asking each other these questions. Now, some of these, <laughs> one of the questions in the first set is, do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? Now, I think that's an interesting question. I'm not going to ask a student that, though. So uh, I don't want that in a discussion board. And, you know, there's some of the obvious ones, like given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you have as a dinner guest? I, of course, would say Dolly Parton. Um, I think that some of these are very interesting, like, would you like to be famous and in what way? And the truth be told for me, I would never want to be famous. I think fame is a disease. And it's very interesting to me the way fame has changed over the last decade or more. I think that social media and social media platforms like Instagram and all those and, and also streaming services have changed the movie industry and the television industry and the star industry so much that I'm not sure fame for Gen Z and people younger than that even 
will be quite the same. I don't know that fame will be as big. I don't know how to put it, but I don't want to be famous because I think I've seen how intrusive it can be, uh, how alienating it can be, how uh, damaging it can be. And then on the other hand, there are people who do great things with their fame and seem to be able to navigate that world. But anyway, so some of these questions might be interesting. Here's another one. Um, if you could change anything about the way you were raised, what would it be? Honestly, y'all wouldn't change anything. Um, even though my parents divorced when I was really young, I'm totally cool with that. Wouldn't want to change that. I loved growing up in Hugh Laco up in North Alabama. I loved moving around to different places. You know, we rented. So, you know, we lived in several places when I was growing up. I loved my my early life and my, and my childhood. I think that my mom did a great job. So I don't know that I would change anything about the way that I was raised. So the first set of questions, there are 12 questions along those lines, right? The second set of questions get a little more personal, a little harder to answer. For instance, there's a question in here. <laughs> Again, I would not ask a student this, but what is your most terrible memory? Uh, mine... Of course, I think for most of us, that would probably revolve around the death of a loved one or death of a pet or, you know, maybe losing a job or whatever. Uh, but I wouldn't ask a student that. Maybe something like this. What does friendship mean to you? I think that's interesting. That might be a good icebreaker. Um, well, here's a question. How do you feel about your relationship with your mother? Now, I can imagine if you're having if you're trying to get closer to someone, if you're out on a date and you want to do this as a way to really get to know someone and increase vulnerability and connection and all of that, that might be great on a date. I'm not going to have a student answer that question either. How do you feel about your relationship with your mother in a public discussion board in our class? Let's not do that. Um, what if anything? This is the, from the neck. There's set number three. There are, again, 12 more questions. Uh, tell your partner what you like about them already. Uh, when did you last cry in front of another person? Share with your partner an embarrassing moment in your life. What if anything is too serious to be joked about? I think these are some interesting questions, but again, <clears throat> I don't know if it would really create the kind of real life connection that you have in the classroom, even if you're getting students to open up and answer questions about nothing too personal like some of those, but it might push them to be a little more revealing, a little deeper or whatever. And hopefully that would establish closeness. I just don't know, you know, when you look in, if you look outside the classroom at the models of social media that we have where people interact with each other and when they don't really know each other, and those online interactions can quite often be very negative, mean-spirited, bullying, all kinds of things happen. There's also very superficial connection. I think the most rewarding connections I've had online, honestly, in social media are with people I already knew before I knew them on social media. There are some exceptions to that, but um, I don't know if there is a model for online learning to create a stronger sense of community. And maybe that's not even a value for administrators and the powers that be. And don't get me started on, on the powers that be and administrators. You know, it's a it's interesting to me that, and I'm almost through y'all because I'm, I'm not going to go much longer, but it's interesting to me that <clears throat> teachers are, in my mind, largely vilified now for one reason or another. So if students aren't succeeding according to whatever standardized tests you have them take, 
there's a lot of blame on the teacher. There are stories of the horrors of tenure and the people, teachers can't be gotten rid of and, and, you know, teachers sleeping in class or reading the newspaper in class or hitting students, God forbid, but, you know, saying, being hateful. But there, I remember when I was growing up, teachers were revered. We really were very, uh, almost solemn about teaching as a profession. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore, whether in K through 12 or college, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, there just seems to be a large public sentiment of hostility towards teachers. And what's always interested me is that that hostility is, in my mind, very much misplaced. Most people, I guess because they, most people have gone through some sort of education, and a lot of them have gone through public education or private, but they've gone through K through 12 or whatever, and they've gone through college. And I guess that if you're a student, you've been a student, you feel that you have some kind of insight into education, and you do. You have insight into the process because you're a student. I was a student as well. But I can tell you the truth. Unless there's a lot, there are a lot of moving pieces in education and teachers, <laughs> teachers are the smallest cog in that wheel, unfortunately. In the administrative part of it, in the decision making process, I'm not talking, I know that there are teachers in their classrooms and I'm, I hope that I'm one of them who are doing great jobs. But we don't make the decisions about <laughs> curriculum or a, a lot of things, okay? Uh, the it's interesting to me that the public is not as informed as they could be about administrations, administrative controls and decisions. So I would like to see a public awakening to the decision making process behind what happens before we get to the classroom. Why teachers, you know, no child left behind. It was not a bunch of teachers getting together and just saying we're going to do this. Right. That was a political movement. That was a decision made by government. Um, testing standards and all these things are set by people in administrative and legislative roles, right? So I wish there would be a public awakening to what's happening in education because I don't think it's never going to be as simple as fire all the bad teachers and hire some new ones. That's not going to help if the system itself is broken. And I think that we can all agree that something is wrong in education. I guess people have been saying that forever. But if we want to continuously improve, all right, and blaming teachers, and I know that I'm somewhat biased because I am a teacher, but <clears throat> I will grant you there are bad teachers, but I think that the system itself and the mentality and the culture surrounding education itself are in need of repair, even more, much more so than the qualifications or the performances of individual teachers at the moment. I really think, because here's what happens. <clears throat> if you have a lot of administrative nonsense happening in the education system, you are eventually going to drive away a certain kind of teacher. You're gonna drive away teachers. Not just a certain kind. Your your teachers are not going, people are not going to be as interested in teaching if you've got a bunch of administrative tomfoolery, okay? <laughs> Do people still use that word? And I and also legislative tomfoolery. I mean, it's interesting to me, and I really am almost done, that in the community college system in Alabama, that the board that is in charge of the community college system 
is composed entirely, except for one ex officio member, of business leaders or business, sorry, business people. I hate the word leaders. I don't, there aren't that many leaders really, not true leaders. So you have all these business people from used car salesmen or used car lot owners to construction, you know, company owners to, you have all of these people, which again, you know, in the community college system in Alabama, we have a large workforce and a career tech component, of course. And I think it makes sense that we have those people on the board. We also have the general education component the academic component, the transfer component. And we have no one representing us on the board, no one from that world, except for one ex officio member. So I think that that tells a very strong tale about where the priorities are with the community college system education in Alabama. But looking at boards, looking at principals, looking at presidents of colleges, looking at the other administrators in colleges and schools, looking at the legislator, legislative processes, looking at the, the bills that come up, looking, keeping on top of things. I think that's really important. I really believe almost we need some sort of, I know we have the AEA in Alabama, and I am a member, a proud member of the AEA that was started, that Paul Hubbard built up. And really in Alabama, we have such great benefits and pay because of Paul Hubbard in the community college system. It, bar none. I don't think there's another community college system in the country that has, the, I could be wrong about that, <clears throat> but I'm, 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 we're, we're one of the few that offers the kind of pay that we offer with the benefits that we offer. And they want to get rid of it. They really do. Um, because it is, it is better than everywhere else. Of course, <laughs> I don't know why you, but if you really want to attract quality, you keep those things and you even improve on them. But I wish that we had some sort of, aside from the AEA, some sort of media presence that really was like almost a watchdog uh, of education in, in the state that was really watch out for things and let us know what was going on. Um, I would do it, but I'm afraid I would get fired. So I don't think anything I've said here is fireable, by the way. I do have a amount of, I, I can talk about where I work. I, I can criticize the system that I work in openly and have, trust me. Uh, one time I went down to Montgomery and se several of my colleagues in other colleges went because we were upset with something they were doing. And we, we were very obvious and they knew why we were there. So trust me, I'm not um, putting myself at risk here. But back to my point, I think that we need to work on the culture surrounding education. We need to really <clears throat> try to get young people and older people who are coming back to understand and invest in and believe in the idea that education is not just for a job. And I know that's kind of unpopular to say right now because everybody think, you know, there's we sort of the pendulum swung the other way. There's this idea that, oh, well, you know, college is not for everybody and, you know, learn a trade. And that's great. And it is. It's wonderful. You can go to where I teach and you can get welding training. You can get uh, automotive training, HVAC training. There's all kinds of wonderful things that you can get certificates for and even associate's degrees to you know, help you get the skills and training necessary to go into a trade, and that's wonderful. I don't discourage that at all, but I also don't want to discourage the people who still want to pursue that the, the academic side of things. And um, I think in that vein, in that area, we really want to emphasize how education is not just about getting a job. It really is about being more informed, being able to think better, being able to make better decisions, 
understanding the way the world works, being able to question your own beliefs and improve in what you and, and improve your own life, to be able to go out and be a better citizen of the country, of the world, to be a better parent, to be a better, uh, to be better in relationships, literature, history, philosophy, uh, writing, music. But all of these things are, the humanities are important. Math is so important. Uh, science is so important. Even if you're not going to be a scientist, even if you're not going to be a mathematician, these things are important because they help us understand the world around us and make better decisions and, and just be better people. So that to me <clears throat> is, the, is one of the things, it's a big thing that's missing in education. So what was my point? I don't remember. But I'm going to wrap everything up because who wants to hear me go on and on? This is what happens when, when a guest cancels on me, though, you guys. I just go on and on because I feel bad not to put out an episode. So if you made it through this far, I appreciate you listening. Sorry if I just went on and on and on, but I really do get passionate about education sometimes. So my next podcast will be back up. My, the podcast will return in January after I've had time to move and rest and relax and gather more guests for the second half of the season starting in January, running through May. And uh, I wish you all a wonderful, happy uh, holiday season, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas, everything. I, I'm forgetting some, but everything. I wish you, I wish you all the best, and I thank you so much for listening. And uh, I will, I will be with you in January. Thank you for listening to Where You Are, a podcast created, edited, and hosted by Jimmy Ellenberg. The intro music is Sunrise by Skirk, used with permission. The views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of my employer. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day wherever you are.